Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo-Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to episode 11 of our series. Last time we talked a little bit about how Jacob was one sly operator who, with some help from his mother, could go outside traditions and cultural norms to get what he wanted. We also saw how his uncle, Laban, managed to bamboozle him into marrying a woman he didn't want to marry, and made himself an employee of Laban who was always in a weaker position with respect to his boss. This week we continue the story, where Jacob uses a combination of cunning and competence to leverage his blessing into a way out of a bad situation and return to his family's homeland. But there is more to it than Jacob's craftiness. There is an important leitmotif in this part of the story that has important implications for much of what follows, not only in Genesis, but over the course of the entire Old Testament. This theme is the idea that God shows favor to those who are weak, who struggle against the predation of the powerful. Jacob's blessing notwithstanding, Laban was still calling all the shots. The story of how Jacob outwits and later gets away from Laban, which starts in Genesis chapter 30, is seen as an example of Jacob's cunning, but Jacob was not being sneaky for its own sake. He had been working for Laban for many years, and now he wanted to take his wives and children and return to his home. When he asks to go, Laban basically blows him off by asking him what his wages will be. In other words, he insists that Jacob will remain as his employee. However, both of them know that Jacob is the reason why Laban is now very prosperous, where before he was just another small-time herdsman. Laban still apparently has the right to decide whether he will give Jacob what he has clearly earned. If Jacob left, it would reduce his ability to sponge off Jacob's blessing and competence. Since Laban is the one with the wealth and power, Jacob must turn to cunning because he has nothing else. Jacob makes Laban an offer. He will continue to watch Laban's flocks, but he will keep as wages only those sheep and goats with unusual coloration, spotted and striped goats and sheep with black on them. Laban agrees, but selects out all of the oddly colored animals and removes them from his flocks, then moves three days' journey away to prevent those animals from passing their coloration on to Jacob's flocks. As far as he's concerned, Jacob just made a sucker's bargain for himself. But Jacob uses an interesting ploy to his advantage. It's widely believed among many pastoral societies that visual impressions at the moment of conception can have an effect on an animal's progeny. I'm told that this belief persists to this day in some parts of the world. This passage is more than a bit confusing, made worse by what appears to be an additional hand attempting to explain it all. Briefly stated, Jacob places branches with the bark peeled away within sight of the animals as they come to drink, at which point they often go into heat. The white sticks mimic stripes, which make a visual impression on the goats, causing them to produce striped offspring. He uses a similar ploy to manipulate the sheep population. Besides that, 
he makes sure to breed only the strongest stock in this way, leaving the weaker animals to remain as Laban's part of the herds. One thing to note here is that while this ploy looks and feels a lot like folk magic, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, it's good animal husbandry and nothing more. There are certain features that accompany magical acts, as we'll see later on, but the use of the peeled sticks and what not does not include any of those features. Using this scheme, Jacob increases his own flocks and undermines Laban's power over him. Gradually, Jacob gains the leverage he didn't have before, and he knows it. In Genesis 31, Jacob is told by God that it's time to leave. He calls Leah and Rachel to a conference out in the field where they will not be overheard. He explains to them how he got the better of Laban, vents some grievances, then reveals his intention to leave. Laban understands that he has been bested. The only card he has left to play is to refuse to let his daughters go with Jacob, so Jacob was simply going to leave without telling him. When they hear the plan, Rachel and Leah's answer is interesting. This is verse, uh, verses 14 and 15 of chapter 31. Is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has been using up the money given for us. All the property that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. Let's parse this. Apparently, Jacob has so completely fleeced Laban, sorry, that was just irresistible, that whatever they would have received as an inheritance now belongs to Jacob anyway. In addition, as Jacob worked for his wives, some funds were apparently set aside for the bride price, or mohar, generally paid by the father of the groom to the father of the bride. In some Middle Eastern cultures, this was saved to support the bride in case of a divorce and that seems to be implied here. Laban apparently spent it all, so the women have no financial incentive to stay with their father. Besides, as they pointed out, God wants Jacob to leave, so they should leave. Rachel makes one last little dig at her father. Unbeknownst to Jacob, she steals Laban's teraphim, or household god. These are generally believed to be small statues of deities made in roughly human form without pedestals. Although the form of the word is plural, in usage it's usually treated as a singular noun. Much has been written about this act and its implications, but we can say with reasonable certainty that it adds significant insult to Laban's injury. It also makes Jacob out to be a thief, and unfortunately gives Laban an additional reason to pursue, and pursue he does. Laban's party moves faster than Jacob with his flocks, herds, family, and servants, and when they catch up, a confrontation ensues. First, there is the matter of the missing teraphim. Laban accuses Jacob of stealing it, so Jacob invites them to search throughout the camp and promises death to the perpetrator, since he believes himself innocent of the charge. Rachel hides the teraphim in a saddlebag and sits on it. She refuses to rise when Laban wants to search the bag, claiming that it's, well, that time of the month. This is a nice turnabout. Laban has always used tradition and protocol to get his way, and now Rachel does likewise, since, according to protocol, her claimed condition sets her apart. 
Next comes a great altercation, in which Laban, once again playing the tradition card, accuses Jacob of trying to carry off his daughters as if they were prisoners of war. Custom demands that Laban be allowed to bid his daughters farewell with a proper traditional send-off, and there is the matter of the missing teraphim. Jacob rejects both charges, and what's more, reads Laban the riot act, or perhaps more correctly, the labor act. Here are verse 36 and following. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin, that you have hotly pursued me? Although you have felt about through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flock. That which was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. Of my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. It was like this with me. By day the heat consumed me, and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I have been in your house. I served you for fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. The accusation of failing to pay wages to a laborer at the conclusion of work was a very serious charge then as now, and really constitutes the main thrust of Jacob's quarrel with Laban. Interestingly, Laban does not dispute this charge. Here we come to an interesting aspect of nomadic culture, since there is no third party who can resolve the dispute. Jacob brings a countercharge of his own against Laban's. If Jacob had no case of his own, Laban could press his accusation. By taking the offensive, Jacob sets up a dispute or reeve. In ancient Israel and elsewhere in the Near East, this was a very early and important legal institution, and our text starts to use terminology that is specific to legal disputation. Without any court or forum, a dispute of this kind cannot be settled in any way but by a pact or covenant in which both sides relinquish their claims. Jacob and Laban do this. They set up a marker stone and solemnize the agreement in the timeless way by sharing a meal. The terms are these. Jacob agrees not to mistreat his wives or take any others, and Laban agrees to stay on his side of the marker. Jacob has, in effect, secured his rear. He is now free of Laban's grasp, and he is no longer a fugitive. in the Middle East are long, both when it comes to slights and wrongs, or favors. Bearing grudges has long been a national pastime. Although Afghanistan is a bit removed from our region, a Pashto proverb perhaps captures this attitude towards vengeance best. I was swift in my revenge. I only waited a hundred years. 
We now return to Jacob and Esau. Jacob has been away from Esau for only twenty, and he assumes, with reason, that Esau is still pretty honked off about the whole unsavory business with the filched father's blessing. His solution is to employ what we might call tactical gift-giving. He sends very large gifts to Esau in waves, with the messengers telling Esau, Moreover, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. Between the sending of the messengers and his meeting with Esau, Jacob has a nighttime encounter with a mysterious figure who, apparently, is none other than God. This figure comes on Jacob in the night, after he had sent his family ahead, and the two of them wrestle through the night. Jacob prevails until his opponent manages to dislocate his hip, but Jacob will not be deterred. He demands a blessing, and he gets it. He is renamed. Israel. Much could be said about the richness of this metaphor and how it speaks not only to the struggle of Israel and his descendants, but of all contests, great or small, in which one pits oneself against unimaginable forces where perseverance brings blessing. Although Esau eventually greets his brother with affection, what follows is as sharp a political thrust and parry as one will find anywhere in the Old Testament. Jacob uses his gifts in a very calculated way to put his brother to a disadvantage. I would like to read from an article by Victor H. Matthews called The Unwanted Gift, Implications of Obligatory Gift-Giving in Ancient Israel, that does a splendid job of explaining the real nature of the negotiations between Jacob and Esau as they meet. Despite the fact that Jacob has reclassified his symbolic identity as a wealthy head of household, referring to himself as a servant, the tangible display of wealth gives him the exact opposite identity in the eyes of his brother Esau. For instance, if Jacob can afford to give up so much, just how wealthy and powerful must he be? In addition, the repetition of the phrase, he is behind us, heightens tension and raises the anxiety level by suggesting that a potential threat is riding down on Esau, despite the fact that Esau is accompanied by a force of 400 men. The threat of being overwhelmed by a superior force, however, is also magnified by the concern over how Esau will be able to reciprocate in the face of such generous gifts. Esau, therefore, employs a strategy of demure. He tells Jacob, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. In this way, he apparently is attempting to dodge the responsibility to reciprocate in kind, and he follows a pattern of positioning more typical of commercial transactions. Plus, by using the title, my brother, he both acknowledges their kinship tie and portrays them as equals hopefully diminishing the power gulf between them as evidenced by the gifts. As a result, any hint of tribute payment by a vassal to a lord is removed, and Esau is portrayed as a concerned family member who does not wish a member of his clan to be impoverished or his family deprived of what they need to survive. Jacob, however, has no intention of letting Esau off the hook. He continues to press Esau to accept the gift, what had originally been a proffered gift is then transformed into a payment for passage into or through Esau's territory, and as such is acceptable and does not 
require reciprocation. At that point, therefore, Esau is free to accept. There is also within this narrative a sense of treaty language as well. Jacob and Esau had been enemies. For a peace treaty to be enacted, some exchange is necessary. Once Jacob's initial gambit has been taken care of, Esau now attempts to gain the upper hand by inviting Jacob and his household to travel with him and his four hundred men. This is a form of gift offering, that is, physical protection, that would transform Jacob and his household into a subsidiary position of clientage. There may also be some suggestion of physical threat, since four hundred warriors accompany Esau. It is certain that he came prepared for trouble. Therefore, by suggesting that Jacob accept his protection, he is making it clear that in his estimation Jacob is incapable of protecting his own household. If Jacob agrees, then he also is de facto relinquishing his rights as head of the household and transferring them to his brother's leadership and lordship. It's not surprising, therefore, that Jacob now employs the demure strategy. He does not want this gift, and immediately makes excuses that allude to Esau's not-so-veiled suggestions of their weakness. He notes that the women, children, and animals cannot maintain the pace set by Esau's men, but a promise is made to follow them at their own pace to Seir. This last statement is a deception. Perhaps to satisfy his honor, Esau tries once more, offering a few of his men as a bodyguard for Jacob's household. This is simply an abbreviated version of the first proffered gift. Jacob is able to push this aside as well by further denigrating himself as unworthy of such an honor from a man who could command such a host of warriors. Esau must therefore be satisfied with these words. Their parting allows Esau to save face with his men and return to Seir with the expectation in his mind that Jacob will indeed follow them there. But when Esau heads south, Jacob goes west and re-enters Canaan. He has paid his brother compensation and obtained a form of reconciliation, but he puts distance between himself and Esau. There is an important takeaway point here. Just because you've reconciled to someone doesn't mean you ignore the possibility of future strife. Forgiveness does not require one to play the fool. Jacob's sojourn in a foreign land will be reprised with the story of Joseph. However, before we get there, I want to spend an episode on some matters of biblical archaeology that will become very important as we move forward. I hope you'll join us for that little field trip next time. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.